the way I view security is like you can have the strongest castle in the world, but if someone leaves the key on the doormat, you got a way in. You can put a lot of these constructs in place that make it very inconvenient to get in, but it's hard to actually secure it all the way around. You've got to put some safeguards in on the software side as well. You have to decide what's the most important thing for you to keep secret and who should have access to it. And you need to define your authorization around that construct. You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Yos Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by HeavyBit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. On today's episode, we're talking with Jeff Taylor of Okta about security, identity authentication, and authorization, and why all three matter when evaluating events like the recent water treatment facility hack. Jeff, why don't you tell us more about yourself and your role with Okta? Yeah, I'm Jeff Taylor. I'm a senior product manager working in our developer experience arm of Okta. And mainly I'm responsible for the SDKs and tools and not the dev tools. So we're responsible for getting our customers up in their customized environments. So if they want to customize the auth experience, they're using our SDKs to integrate with Okta and to do all the things that their customers need. On the dev tool side, we're just looking at making it easier for our customers to you know, basically own and operate their entire authentication process. So we're doing things like uh, helping with Terraform. Um, we're looking to get into other markets of CI and CD, which are really exciting for us, and to help uh, bridge the gap between app developers and development operations to sort of like pull in the whole app development lifecycle. So that's, that's some of the big rocks that I'm working on. Excellent. So, you know, this podcast is called Unintended Consequences, and what we're here to talk about is the things that we didn't expect when our plan went well, or the things that we didn't expect to go wrong. And I think it's really interesting to listen to you talk about the APIs and think about what it is in APIs, which we think of as being, you know, relatively slow-moving and stable. What is the hard part of getting people up and running? It's a little bit about merging the two domains. So the way I look at this is, you know, you've got two pieces of the puzzle. Like I'm an app developer coming in, I've got my business objectives for my application, and I want to do something like authentication. I've got to figure out, well, what does this actually mean to integrate with authentication? And how am I going to seamlessly integrate that so it doesn't, you know, so I, I can understand the things that I need about authentication, but I don't disrupt any of my business needs. So it's about finding this balance, right, on, on how I can get my job done without having to become an expert in like two worlds. One that's only going to be a temporary thing because I've just got to get this in for the short term, but I've really got all of these other objectives that I've got to achieve on the other side. So I think that's really like one of the difficult parts is like how do you get enough information to like go forth and do as opposed to just being mired in like trying to understand everything about a given subject. I think finding that, striking that right balance is, is really the hardest part. And then it's that initial inertia where you're like, okay, I feel like I've got my wings under me. I'm ready to fly and leave the nest and actually integrate with this thing. I really like that you brought it back to business value. I think this is a constant 
sort of tension between security organizations as a whole and companies is like the most secure thing would be not to talk to anybody on the internet. And that's not really a great option for most of us. So how can security be making business value work better? And I think that's one of the great things about what y'all are doing is like this, once it's working, this this seamless, you don't have to log in all the time using different passwords thing. It just magically works for you. When it goes wrong, what does it look like? I guess like the first thing, you're talking about like authentication and security. You know, the first emotion that I usually have when I'm reading these articles is, you know, empathy for the embarrassment that another company may feel because like something has happened and the trust that you work so hard to build with your users takes a hit. And, you know, drawing like, I, so I, in my background, I've been very much a humanist. I'm very much interested in the human condition. And part of what pulls me into these articles is the emotions that are going on across like all of the boards that are affected, like the consumers that have to like figure out what to do with their accounts all the way down to, you know, the CISO that has to answer for the questions of how this could happen all the way down to the operators or the developers that may have left a hole in it, it, it ripples through and it creates this, this kind of chasm. And so what it looks like is um, I, I think that the, if you take a macro look at this, it opens up a lot of inspection on a lot of different areas from the software to the leadership, to the processes and in some cases, to some of the other practices that are going on in an organization. So it's like flinging a door open to a closet that may or may not be organized and having a lot of things sort of fall out. And you're, you're rushed to having to clean that up and also reestablish, you know, get on that road to reestablishing trust with your end users. So I just think it's, it's one of those, like, it's, it's a, I want to say a Pandora's box, but there's just a lot that happens once this goes wrong that you have to run damage control and there's like little fires here and there that you've got to answer to answer for um, to really put that out. That's awesome. I think that I, I love that analogy of like a guest has come over and instead of opening the coat closet, they open the closet that you shoved everything into right before they came over. Yeah. Maybe this is just my post pandemic planning. I'm like, Oh, friends coming into town. Let's meet you at a museum yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> but as businesses, we don't get to do that. So when I think about what you're doing, I think about all the things that have come before and all the other times we've tried to homogenize and federate our identities and, and the different ways that they've failed. What do you think sort of the most interesting failure of identity management has been? Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite ones. It's like trying to make more secure passwords. That's like been my favorite. Uh, actually, like I lived through this too at my last job. So I was running a, an authentication uh, identity and access management for our consumers. And we had this constant tug and pull of like, should the password be eight or 12 characters? And there's like a lot of math. Like I got into like the entropy between the digits and how it gets to points where it can defeat the rainbow table and all sorts of fun things. And ultimately the consumers that respond, they're like, I hate this. Like, if you just make this easier, I could sign up for your application. But we're like, no, 12 characters, got to have a mix of symbols and numbers, can't have common words in it. So the things that you would naturally gravitate toward remembering your password, you can't use. And I think the other part of this is the solution that kind of doubles down on this, which is a, it's a better solution, but like having a vault, which is saying, instead of writing your passwords down on a post-it that you can attach to your desk, write it down in your secure vault, which, of course you need a stronger password to secure. So it's kind of this like meta concept of like, 
using the thing that doesn't have high usability to secure the low usability thing. It's just this thing that keeps lapping over itself. And I find it amusing that we've gone this far with it. And you look at even like some of the more secure like banking applications, they go a little bit crazy with it. But what's interesting is that now users have just started to push back with a collective voice saying like, it's just, there's just gotta be a better way. And like, luckily we've now crossed a national on where there are a lot more opportunities to kind of remove the password or put less importance on the password for our consumers. I have a couple questions. Yeah. I want to ask about these other methods, but first, what is the rainbow table? Oh, so this rainbow table is like a dictionary of like commonly used passwords that you can just brute force and run through. It's what some things that attackers will use to guess passwords. So you might see these um, in, in some cases where you have like low entropy in your in your passwords, you'll... Uh, Which means they're only like six digits and you don't have to have special characters. So if you have just like six letters, that's a low entropy password. It, exactly. So if you had like, if you have it with like one symbol and like five characters, like between A and Z capitalized or whatnot, I can just build a table of all the possible responses and just run through them if I've got the time and there's no like security on the other end, like nothing like a lockout or something. And the worst is if there's like a time delay, you can just wait and then try it again. But some people get sophisticated enough to just do proper guessing on them so they can, you know, guess a guess a user's password. But that's one of the things that I think is really hard about that. Like, I think the recommended length is something like 16 characters. Um, it's really hard to do that. There's just so many combinations. And if you look at a lot of password, like password vaults, that's kind of what they'll recommend. They'll generate them for you. And so you can uh, you can secure your access to sites. My streaming for watching the Tour de France made me do ten characters with a special character and also like rules on where the capitals fell. And I'm just like, really? I'm just here to watch the Tour de France. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Like that's and that's in the essence of how absurd it gets with the password policies. The time it takes for you to create your password depreciates the value on the service that you're getting. So I think what's interesting is it then links to the business case where it's like users just don't want to sign up for your service. Even if they find it valuable, the friction that it causes for them to sign up and get an account so they can use that service, you know, kind of flips the script. And so they, they just won't sign up. And it's, it's really interesting to see how that could affect your bottom line. Can I admit something terrible? And I hope nobody like tries to figure out which account I'm talking about. But there is one account that I had to use to pay a bill on the regular and I kept forgetting the password. So I just got in the habit of resetting my password every time I had to log in and pay the bill on a quarterly basis. That's better than reusing a password. Actually, so uh, a long time ago in a past life, I actually had uh, a person that I worked with who that was their standard operating procedure. They would just randomly generate a password every time that they had to use a service. And you know, if it's strong enough, right, you just have to remember it that one time and you just go and reset. As long as there's no requirements, like you can only do one password change in like a week. Most of these are set to 24 hours. But yeah, if you're not using something frequently it's and you know that it's secure, like you're paying a bill like every month or every like quarter or something like that, then yeah, like that's, that's totally viable because now you're not, you're not creating something that's too easy to guess. You're creating something that's super random. You, you have an opportunity to make that longer and more complicated because you don't care about remembering it. So it's not a terrible practice. I feel a little bit better knowing that. Well, because that's, uh, you know, in my journeys through security, I think that's one factor that, um, you know, it's like people people worry about like complexity. And there's this like dangling factor of time, right? Like 
if you look at like key rotations and stuff, that's like why this this comes into play. Like, I want to keep the attacker guessing so that the you know the the credential will constantly change so that you've got this other variable that they have to account for, not just like the complexity. So I think like what you're doing if you're doing that manually, you're saying like you've got this short time window in which you can guess it, but now it's it's combined with these other factors of the complexity and the strength and how I'm actually constructing the password. So it makes it a lot more difficult to, to guess yeah, if, you're, if you're applying all of those at a high level. So I want to sort of loop back to a thing where we were talking about vaults and like the intended consequence is that everyone will set a unique strong password for every service they use. That is, that is sort of the stated goal. But the unintended consequence is that then they write that one password to all of their passwords somewhere, hopefully on a post-it note physical rather than online somewhere. But what other unintended consequences do you see from from password vaults? Well, so that's a good question. I think some of the other things that you would see is you still don't, and I say like reuse is like always a big thing. Like you, you, they say that, distinctly like you shouldn't you should use i think that might be another unintended consequence because now you you have the security of saying well like okay well where do i want to put my investment like i want to put my investment in the secure password that will secure my vault so i will commit that strong password to memory so that will you know effectively safeguard all of my other passwords right so i then make the false assumption that i can just set all of my other passwords with you know like just lower like lower things whatever the minimum requirement is and maybe I'll reuse them if I if I don't want to keep generating more. Like so, you may create a false sense of security on the outside, depending on how the users interact with the vault. And that's like I think the other you know aside from like saying I'm going to write it down, and now I've got a like a post-it note that I keep in my wallet that has my vault password on it. So when I open up on my phone, I can you know I can do that. That's another one that I think is a is an unintended consequence that you create like this borrow a phrase a security blanket around your passwords, so you're less strict about how you construct your passwords for each of these individual sites. It's sort of like we all have a personal caring about this budget, and where we allocate it is the only difference. Yeah. So, changing gears, I was thinking about one of the interesting things that we've found with our product is people use it in ways that we didn't expect. Are you seeing anybody use Okta in like surprising, unexpected ways? You're like, huh... We never planned for that, but okay. Yeah, I think uh, one of the the biggest ways that we're seeing Okta used in different ways is just in like how people are customizing it. Um, I think it's always surprising to see how people will extend our product. Like they'll hook it up to different workflows. They'll, they'll use uh, our particular hooks to hook into other systems. I always find that fascinating because it, it just speaks to the the variations in business cases across different companies and the ways that they actually look and interpret how authentication can make their their systems and their user experience better. And then I think the other thing is just like, you know, how there's there's just ways that you can make the system really, really complex in ways that actually make, you know, a ton of sense. We were looking at, um, I find that our multi-tenancy models to be the most interesting where a company is saying, well, I'm going to source a child organization for a customer and it's got to be set up in a certain way. So they're utilizing like our Terraform, they're using our APIs, they're using our SDKs 
to basically streamline this onboarding process. And I just find that fascinating. I've always had like a, a fascination with like Rube Goldberg devices. And I see that a lot in software, which is one of my, one of my interests that drew me to software, which is seeing how all of these things can be chained together. How you can take like response from system one, put that into system two, take that response from systems one and two, put that into system three, and then actually see something flowing from end to end that, you know, looks amazing on the other side. So I always find that like, that's just, intriguing. Um, and when you open this up to like customization through things like APIs and SDKs, you really just sort of, you know, open the world to all of these varied use cases. Yeah. I think that's something that I enjoy too, is like DevRel will get up there and tell you how everything is Lego and it snaps together neatly. And in the real world, there's like a silly putty layer where <laughs> you're like, okay, but I need it to turn at an angle that Lego doesn't do. So we're going to smudge this stuff together and make it, make it work. And people do make it work and it drives business. So must be doing something right. Yeah. When you're thinking about what you're delivering, what are your upstream dependencies? Like, what do you have nightmares about going out? Is it S3 or who do you rely on? So putting it in the layers of customization that we operate in. So like, take something like our dev tools or Terraform. Like we sit on top of an API that's managed by our platform. So we really rely on the platform to you know make everything consistent and consumable and understandable. You know, the, the thing that keeps me up at night is like the SDKs we get in are like, are the, are the customers happy with them, right? Are they like, are they able to achieve their goals in the right ways? Are they able to utilize authentication in the right ways? Is our platform properly supporting how our customers are consuming? Working in APIs, I think um, you always worry about interpretation. I think this is one of the great things about APIs. So you're putting in these building blocks, especially if you're building like RESTful models, you're basically saying, here's all the objects, how they relate to each other, and then go go forth and build what you need. But you do hope that the way that you've constructed that API is a little bit more intuitive. So customers are kind of using it in the way that you intend. But I mean, you get these surprises, of course, like that's just the nature of the business. But one of the things I'm worried about with building these things out is like, you know, am I putting my customers in the the best possible scenario to where they can absorb these changes without, you know, having to do so much. I mean, working in APIs, I've taken a stance on like not versioning as much as possible. You know, looking to to reimagine these things because I believe in that uh, that interpretation is is key, right? I want to make sure the object model is, is is right, the object definitions are correct, and that it makes sense so that people can properly use it, get their jobs done, and basically be super successful on the other end. So. Boiling that down, it's the things that keep you up. Like making sure we've got the strong platform. We're exemplifying all of the great aspects of the platform through our SDKs and our dev tools. And then on the customer side, that they're able to interpret and use them effectively. That sounds like a lot of documentation. Is that a, a thing that you've found needs to be scaled out? Or is that something your team does for themselves? How's that work? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. I think um, the documentation is key. I think, you know, I've been a developer myself, so I know how I approach documentation. So I think having documentation that puts yourself at the keyboard as quickly as possible. Um, I like things like Swagger for APIs, so I can like read about it, try it out, understand it. We, we have like Postman collections for that as well. But yes, documentation is key. And um, one of the things that we've been like working towards is to build our 
SDKs and samples to where we can get you at the keyboard faster in terms of the scenarios that will mean the most to our customers. So really describing this in concrete terms, like here's the SDK for how you'll log in. Here's the SDK for how you'll employ MFA. Here's the SDK for how you extend your authentication to do social. It's important to see that in action so that you can tangibly try it out. And that leads to a, a more effective way of implementing it in your natural code. On the periphery, we see documentation as a way in filling in some of those gaps that may be more nuanced in ways that we want to suggest doing certain things. So we've actually tightly coupled step-by-step -step guides with our sample applications to sort of give you this kind of rich experience on how to bring this into your application. So to answer your question, yes, like documentation is essential. I feel it's more symbiotic than anything else. Like they live and breathe off of each other. So having good samples leads to good documentation. Having good documentation leads to samples with this ultimate goal of like having an effective experience for the developer on the other side. That's really excellent. I think that it's sometimes something that people overlook, even when they're building APIs. They're like, well, the API, you know, we did use OpenAPI or, or something to document it, but it doesn't have that user story, the, the why you would want to do this that is so key to finding the thing that you need to do in the moment. Yeah, and I think that's like one of the lost value props of something like Postman. Um, the way that, like, when I've done APIs in the past, we would always construct our Postman collections to be kind of like journey centric. So, like, in our user API, we would say this is how you create a user, this is how you'd find a user, this is how you'd update a user. So, it actually like walks you through and it uses the same responses. So, you're actually getting a feel of like how I would construct my requests in my application just by exploring the API. So I really believe in like this API exploration as a way to explore the data model, but in the way that you intend, you have this opportunity to shape the customer's understanding if you phrased everything and organized everything in a way that sort of walks them through the way that you're envisioning they would walk through. Of course, like, and I think the beauty of this is that it doesn't say that this is the prescriptive and only way to do it, but what it does is it sets them up to understand, okay, this is how the API was intended to use. Like if I need to extend it in a certain way, I know what pieces of the request and response I would need for these others. So I can start to interject another step if I need to have a detour or I need to do something else in my other app. And I can do that safely and with some confidence that I'm not going to like totally blow everything up to where, you know, I have to like you know, launch something more separately, have a ton of tests around it, and like feel less confident in the solution I'm developing, or I have to like go to targeted like support or something. I can't just rely on what I can get out of the box to keep going. So the examples are sort of how you would use this, and the documentation extends it to how you would utilize it in sort of the MacGyver sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you have like this, hey, here's how the API is intended to be used, but like you use the samples and documentation to say like, here's a real world use case of what this would look like. It's a little bit nuanced in that respect, I'd say. But yeah, like that would be the intention. Like the, you can literally walk through, here's call one, call two, call three. In the documentation, you're saying like, you know, it's more like sort of like, I guess, like value driven. Like here's how you log a user in. Here's how you, you know, create a user or something like that. So let's talk a little bit about breaking news in the recent time. These uh, attacks on water treatment plants, where it turns out that people have been like RDPing into water treatment plants and basically leaving their workstations wide open. What do we do about that as an industry? I feel like we've left behind a lot of people who need security maybe even more than we do. Yeah, I think that... Um this is an ever-present question, right? Like, 
there's a couple of ways that I look at these when I when I read about them. I try to find out like okay, what was the entry point? Like in this case, like it was people RDPing. They were, may or may not have been using like a licensed software. I think like some people were using like I think they mentioned like Team Viewer in some instances, which does allow you to like RDP and like have like live screen share. But what was interesting about that case was the actual instrumentation change. So like I was able to they like they were able to get into the console and then change the you know, basically the the makeup of the water to to put it into some very dangerous state. So I think like what's interesting about that is that there's two real issues there. There's obviously the perimeter defense, which is like not allowing certain things to come in um, and blocking that out with like a strong like maybe like a data management policy, strong like uh, RDP policy. But there's this other part in there in the actual domain, like the domain of the water treatment plant, which is should someone be allowed to change the parts per million in a particular chemical to get to a dangerous level without having some catastrophic chain of approvals getting launched before the thing happens. So the long story short in that is like, yes, I think that there's a lot of work to do to secure the periphery, but the way I view security is like you can have the strongest castle in the world, but if someone leaves the key on the doormat, you got a way in. And I think that's where you can, you can put a lot of these constructs in place that make it very inconvenient to get in, but it's hard to actually secure it all the way around. You've got to put some safeguards in on the software side as well. I mean, I, like, I think this is like really open for debate, but like one of the things I thought was like immediate was, well, first on the software side, we should lock down how much you know, you can add to a particular water supply. Like that, that seemed to be like low hanging fruit. Like that should either be prevented. Yeah. Like let's put in a guardrail there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that should be prevented. And then on the second part, yeah, it's like, let's go in and say, okay, well, like if you want to access these certain systems, like you need two factor, right? Like this is a big one. You need two factor. And like some of the other things that I worked on in the past were like, well, maybe you need simultaneous key turns, right? Some things you could utilize with phones, like you need to have someone like in proximity with you, physically in proximity with you to make that change. Those are things that you can do. But I think the biggest lift here is really like adding a, an additional factor of something like a, you know, web auth key or, or like, you know, like a biometric on your phone or just an added factor of an SMS message, an OTP or some even another OTP site, like a Google authenticator. Some of these things that you could add to not just assure that someone put in the right password, but that they also have another piece of collateral that identifies them. Let's back up and talk about different identity factors because not everybody is soaked in it the way we are. So what are the the factors to confirm identity? Yeah, so it's usually based on like different, what is it? It's like the who you are, when you are, where you are, and kind of what you know. And what you know are what we are really familiar with. These are like passwords and then also the what you have. So like your your Ownership. So ownership might be your phone through like an SMS or through an app. Also could be email. The other ones like the where you are and when you are, those are like more soft-based contextual authentication factors that you can uh, look at. I've worked in the past in some um, exploration of this. Like you could look at routine patterns. Like when do, like in the case of this water treatment plant, when do people usually make changes? If they get a they get a request at three in the morning, you say, well, that's really odd. So maybe I just don't allow it. Maybe I'll wait till normal business hours. And then the where you are, too, is using, like, your location to actually confront. So, like, if you're trying to do a change on this water plant, 
remotely, maybe that's you know not recommended. I know that things have changed in the pandemic, so maybe you're actually geofencing around particular people's areas of interest. So if something comes in from another place, you can either ask for more step up or do it that way. But those are like the the ones that are really prevalent. Um, you also have these like you know obviously the the RSA keys and UB keys that are like more hardware device specific that will allow you to log in. There's a number of different factors. And I think that's what makes this whole process really interesting is you don't have to choose just one. Each of these can be used in the different scenarios to actually verify your identity. Yeah. I I think I learned it as who you are, what you have and what you know. Mm -hmm. And another basic concept that we should probably back up and cover, especially in this context is the difference between identity authentication and authorization. Oh. So like who you are when you log in and what you're allowed to do are are different scenarios. Yes. Which kind of gets at something you mentioned. Should you be allowed to make certain changes? Like you said, adding this certain element to the water past a certain mark. Like, is this something you should be allowed to do? Yeah. And that's uh so the authorization part is where you kind of bridge the gap. So if you think about it, identity, like we can speak in terms of Okta, like we can recommend like, this is how you should authenticate. These are like best practices around authentication. These are best practices around defining identity. So like how you would define a person in your system. But identity kind of starts to bleed into the domain. Like it's, it's not just like Okta can't say like everyone should be defined as this. Like you have different companies out there with different users that need to do different things. They need to have a say in how they define what the identity looks like, and especially in authorization. Authorization is the thing that really resides mostly in that domain. Like what a person of a certain level with a certain set of responsibilities should be able to do a certain thing. Okta is not going to be able to know all of that for all of its customers. We really rely on having the things in there to say, sure, it's protected if you like use things like an OAuth, you can use scopes which are ways to define authorization. But still, this has to be kind of agreed upon with the customer. So they have to really know what they want to allow a particular user after they're authenticated to do. So I think that's where there's a lot of like really, I mean, the way I used to talk to my developers about it was like, you should really think if like the information that you've got were just live on the internet, would you be willing to share that with everyone? The answer is no, then you want to put it behind something where only authorized people can look at it. But it wasn't like up to, we were recommending this to other teams at my last job, but even when we're talking to customers here at Okta, like that's kind of where they have to go. So you have to decide what's the most important thing for you to keep secret and who should have access to it. And you need to define your authorization around that construct. Yeah, that's really cool. And and nerds will talk about this as auth n and auth z. So if if you're trapped in a room full of security nerds, now you know what they're saying. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things you mentioned, OAuth, talk to me a little bit about Octa's merger and what's going on. Oh yes, yeah. so well we recently acquired Auth Zero. So Auth Zero, uh, some of you may know, works in the same space. They are very developer-focused and very pro-code with their um, solutions. But we actually saw that there's a there's a lot of good synergy between the two companies and really excited that we're able to join forces now and really really just disrupt the whole identity landscape. I think there's 
there's a lot of really good energy about the, the things that we can do together. And actually, it's just been really interesting to learn and talk to people from Auth0 about like what their thoughts are on all of this, uh, all of these identity concepts and everything. So it's actually, you know, it's one of those things that like it happened and actually is like pretty cool to see how we're, we're all coming together. And it's just it's a very exciting time. So what would you say so far the most surprising outcome is? Like, what's the surprising thing you've learned? I'd say like the most surprising thing is like just how complementary things are. Like, you know, that you, you would think like, oh, we're in the same space. Like this might be like difficult or whatnot, but like there's just a lot of like, you know, like a common alignment and values too. It's just like really kind of cool to see. So there's like a lot of confidence that like we've now just put two really great companies together and like we're going to go out and do some really great things uh, in this industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly.